From Next47, this is the AI Unveiled podcast with me, Gaurav Kotak. In this episode, I'm speaking with Michelangelo D'Agostino, VP of Machine Learning, and Lionel Barrow, co-head of engineering of Tigas, an investment research platform with over 60,000 expert transcripts. Michelangelo joined Tigas recently. In his words, he is super intrigued to build machine learning powered features on top of this massive proprietary data set. That's what we discussed in this episode. They believe AI will bring a profound change in how financial research is done. From sifting through the data to now surfacing insight based on past usage and where their users are in the research funnel. We discuss how they plan to balance the high need for accuracy in financial research with the tendency for large language models to hallucinate. They started with a narrow focus of applying AI to specific calls and are now progressing towards AI-powered insights at the company level or entire sector. This episode provides a glimpse into the future of financial research. Let's dive in. Welcome to AI Unveiled. Today, we're joined by Lionel, co-head of engineering, and Michelangelo, VP of machine learning from Tigas. Lionel, welcome. Great to see you, Gaurav. How are you doing? Very well. And Michelangelo, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here. Let's get started. Um, for the very few people who might not know, could you give us a brief summary of what Tigas does, Lionel? Yeah, so Tigas is uh, an investment research company. We help institutional investors such as venture capital or uh, hedge funds, asset allocators, whatever, uh, make investment decisions. And we do this by offering a suite of different products that aim at different parts of the research process. So the the three kind of flagship offerings are an expert network where we help pair up investors and uh, and uh, experts in different topics. We set yeah. them up for interviews. They have conversations. And then as kind of a spin on that, we record and transcribe those conversations and sell subscription access to a library of those interviews. And so that's a fast and easy product for getting up to speed on anything you care to learn about as an investor. The second yeah. major offering we have is uh, a set of thousands of really high quality financial models, DCF models that kind of help you explore and understand where, uh, how a company's financials work and where they're coming from. Uh, those are built out by formerly Catalyst, a company that we acquired last year. Um, and it's been great kind of working with them and getting them to be part of the team. And then finally, there's BAMSEC, which is a very powerful uh, set of search and retrieval tools for looking at SEC filings, earnings and events reports, things like that. It's very, very uh, commonly used all across the investment banking world as kind of a way of just like quickly navigating lots of different data sets. So that's where we are today. Uh, and as we have discussed over time, Gaurav, the, the goal here is that these will be ingredients into the uh, super smoothie of different investment research tools that we're going to blend together and make into something far more delicious and powerful than some of its parts. So we're starting with these like really great foundations and we're hoping to build something that just just saves investors a ton of time, helps them figure out, uh, helps them do them, their best work and figure out their positions and generally just like is, is a super great tool for professional investors. Yeah, awesome. And just in the last 12 to 18 months, you've you, you've morphed into a multi-product interconnected platform. Uh, so, and I'm sure that's just the beginning. And as a VC um, and as a very happy customer of Tigas, thank you for saving me tons of time, both on the expert interviews and financial models. Uh, love it. Michelangelo, you recently joined Tigas as VP of Machine Learning, which must be such an exciting role given what Tigas does. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and why did you decide to join Tigas? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been doing machine learning for, I guess, over 15 years-ish now. Um, I was using 
neural networks before this recent resurgence uh, of deep learning back as part of my physics PhD, analyzing hundreds of terabytes of data. Um, so I left physics, uh, I guess, back in 2011 um, and have been starting and leading uh, data science and machine learning teams in, in a variety of industries. So fintech space, uh, politics and marketing, e-com. Uh, and as you mentioned, I joined Tegas um, back in uh, January, February of this year. Um, and so I've known Tom, our founder, for a while, and I was just super intrigued by um, this massive proprietary text data set that we have access to and that we have never really uh, built machine learning powered features on top of. So I joined, uh, uh, I actually told Tom I was going to join before the sort of recent chat GPT explosion because I'd been so excited about everything that had been happening in, in natural language processing over the last five or six years. And then uh, chat GPT happened and sort of uh, took everything to a new level in terms of speed and interest in and building product features on top of our data. And yeah, I mean, truly, you have a goldmine of unstructured data that uh, AI and LLMs feed on. Uh, Lionel, you're, you're a Tegas veteran. Uh, can you share a bit more about your background and what you do at Tegas? Yeah, so I'm a software engineer. I, I kind of come from that, that background is the majority of my career. Um, I joined Tegas in late 2018 as I think I was employee number six or seven or something like that. But basically, I was brought in to, to head up the software engineering team to build up the team and kind of at first be a little bit of a lead engineer, but then a, a, the idea was always kind of that I would step back and, and be the full-time manager of the team. And so it's been really exciting seeing that grow from, you know, me and a couple of my friends that I had hired for my last job to now it's um, almost 100 people in our engineering team. So it's been great. And I've kind of had different titles, but the job has always been to, to run this engineering team, uh, which has been really rewarding. Uh, before that, I worked in payments. So I worked, I was a uh, Early, early-ish employee at Braintree, which is a fairly successful payment processor that was subsequently acquired by PayPal, where I stayed for uh, a while. Amazing, amazing. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of org design uh, later in the podcast. But to start off, let's let's start with the big picture, especially given what Tegas does uh, and the immense amount of opportunities. Um, Lionel, thinking broadly, how have your customers typically or historically interacted with your product? And how do you think that is or will change over the coming years? Sure. And I, I think, let me say at the outset, I'm, I'm speaking about the experience of interacting with our expert interviews product, which is currently like the, the focus of a lot of our work. But I think over time that will broaden. But just with that ca caveat, you know, the, the, the expert interviews like research experience has been a SaaS product since its inception. Um, but within that context, we always have tried to think about the workflows that our customers have, and in particular, this notion of there's a research funnel. You start out with a certain number of ideas, and over time, you narrow them down, and you go deeper and deeper on certain companies as you make investments. This is, you know, uh, characteristic of, of public equity investment in particular, but it, I think it's like broadly true of, of, you know, VC and so forth as well. So when we look at different customer behavior, we see there's often quite a lot of stuff where if I'm just starting to get to know a company, I have a couple questions like, you know, what do they do, that sort of thing that is fairly uh, fairly straightforward. And we often see like the most common thing that people search for in our product is just like single company names because they want to learn about Datadog or whatever it is. Um, but then people go deeper and they say, I want to, I'm going to print out, you know, I've decided I'm going to really learn a lot about this, this company. I'm going to print out or I'm going to uh, 100 pages of, of expert interviews or I'm going to read like all the expert interviews on topic, that sort of thing. And so that's kind of where we're starting is that's the way we see people use the product. Now, if you say, where is investment research going? Everyone will talk about chatbots, right? That's the the kind of, the directional thing is like, everyone's like, hey, I uh, actually just the other day, I had a, a customer kind of call me up and, you know, ask to speak to someone in product and say, hey, you should really build like XYZ type 
chatbot feature. And I think it's really exciting. Everyone, you know, we're going to have question answer experiences where you can kind of ask big questions of some sort of AI system. And at first, it'll start by just synthesizing text, but we'll eventually extend it to understand our financial models, all that sort of stuff. I think that's super cool. Uh, chat is very powerful. It's open-ended in the same way traditional search is open-ended, but it can do a lot more. It can synthesize answers much more powerfully than, than traditional search can. Um, but from a UX perspective, it's not at all clear to me that that's actually where everything is going to go. So to give one example, just if you think about what our customers are trying to do and like how that fits into their workflow, early on in a research funnel, you're often asking like the same five questions, or maybe you have like slight variation between different industries, but like fundamentally you're going to be like, all right, what does this company do? How do they make money? What do their customers think of their products? What's the quality of their management team? It's like, it's kind of the same thing over and over again. And so having to, just to give, you know, one example, like having to type that into a chatbot over and over again just sounds kind of annoying. Like I wouldn't want to have to do that. And so when we think about like what, what can we do with AI technology, with LLM technology, like yes, there's interactive features that it would be very cool and that we would like to offer eventually. But I also think that there's tons of ways you can kind of say, hey, if we have a really good sense of what our customers are trying to do in their roles, we can actually meet them where they're going and offer things to them uh, without a need for an interactive experience that might just slow them down. So anyways, I think that, long story short, I think that chat's going to be very huge. I think that that's tend to be where people immediately go to, go to think about the stuff. But I don't think it's going to be everything. I, I don't think it's going to be the case that in five or 10 years, everything is going to be a chat interface. And honestly, I kind of hope not. That would be, that would be annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've actually done a few interviews now, and chat almost, um, the context window starts at the chat, right? Where... But in your case, as you said, based on the use case, you know, you know, to a high level of prediction, at least in the early stages of the funnel, for example, what are the five questions? And it would be kind of stupid to ask those <laughs> through a chat interface. Um, but the other thing you also mentioned, and, and, and correct me if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, is today the process relies on the human to go through tons of information and then synthesize it. Um, and in the future, whether it's chat or some other type of uh, UX, um, the idea is not just provide the 26 transcripts and the models, et cetera, but to actually kind of winnow that down generically or generally, but also specifically based on my use case. Is that a kind of good summary? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely right. I think that's definitely a starting point. I do think that you one of the things that you can do with LM technology that you can't do with traditional search or is very hard to do with traditional search is you can have some level of synthesis of the answer. Now, of course, this gets you into territory. You want to be very careful that it's accurate and you know not making anything up and isn't, you know, there's certain types of questions that you could ask that you could expect a reasonable synthesis, other questions you could not. But it is a thing, it is kind of what's out there, what's beckoning, I, I think, for people who are interested in going there. I think you're, you're hitting at this a little bit with the context window. I, I think that an interesting parallel to think about a little bit is something like, um, you know, you open up your phone and you pull out your Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it is, and immediately just the, the context that you're pr providing the system of like the time of day, your current location, you know, your, your previous habits, all that sort of thing, that can provide you with quite a lot of information. So they can say, oh, it's, it's 2.30 p.m. You're probably going to be looking for a coffee shop, like that sort of thing. Like there's the, the ability to like kind of get something to the user without them even having to enter anything into the system. I think it's like a powerful technique that a lot of prior systems have used and that we would hope to be able to bring that into uh, whatever we're going to be offering in a research system or using LLMs. And you you touched upon generative AI. Let's talk a little bit more about the 
balance between complete generative AI and how important that is to your product strategy and perhaps even you know, relying on more manual and human-led inputs, right? Uh, how do you view that, especially given accuracy is pretty important because your, your, your customers are making multi-million dollar investment decisions based on, on the content that you provide? Yeah, I, I think I could kind of get started here and maybe Michael Angelo also have some thoughts. Um, I view, there, so I think in the context of product strategy and these new AI technologies, there's kind of two or three buckets, uh, maybe two and a half buckets. One is new experiences that you just like, it would be infeasible for whatever reason to offer without the, the backend system technology. And so chat type, chat type experiences, interactive experiences are the number one example of this, where it's like there was simply no way to do this before. And so those are things that we're you know, obviously studying, we're obviously interested in that sort of thing. The second group, which I think is kind of what you're getting at maybe, is that there are things that you could have done with just people that suddenly it becomes feasible from a speed, accuracy, efficient, and also just, frankly, like economic perspective, it becomes feasible to do. So two examples that are live on our product right now are uh, summarizing each interview that TGS, uh, TGS customers create. And, you know, each of our each of our interviews are done by a customer, like done by a fellow investor. And so they're looking to get to the bottom of these things. And we have a compliance associate read every single interview, but they don't currently write summaries of them. And so the summarization is an area where like, okay, well, we think that LLMs can do a pretty good job summarizing this stuff. And it's just, it's far more scalable than having a human do it themselves. Another area would be topic extraction, where we can say, and this is where I'll let Michelangelo drop in, but it's like, you know, these are things that we could have done, but it was basically not that feasible until this new technology. And so that's like been a huge boon. Yeah, I think what I would add to this is, like, I mean, coming from a, a more traditional machine learning background, I think the question is not sort of these like new generative uh, experiences versus like something that would have required a human before. I think it's these sort of these new generative experiences, but then something that you might have used um, in the past, like a more bespoke machine learning model for. Like, I think there's this huge range of use cases that um, were traditionally possible with with ML. So summarization, right? Summarization is not new. We have we've had machine learning models that could um, do extractive and abstractive summarization before, or um, topic analysis, or you know, text classification. Like all of these things, we could do in machine learning, and we've been able to do them for years. It's just that generally it requires uh, training data, bespoke models, people, expensive people with um, very you know rarefied skill sets in order to actually do this stuff and put it into your process, uh, into your product. And so I think what's what's changed a lot with um, these LLMs in, in sort of a non-generative context is like you can do a lot of these um, traditional machine learning tasks um, really quickly, uh, often very accurately, uh, basically just via an API. Uh, and you can do that often by an engineer or someone who doesn't have that um, very specialized machine learning knowledge. And so um, the couple of examples that Lana mentioned, um, the summarization of our interviews and um, topic analysis of our, of our transcripts, like, both of those things were possible with the machine learning that we had a year ago or two years ago. It was just hard uh, and it took a long time and it took a lot of training data, specialized knowledge, but we were able to roll those things out in a couple of months um, just because we were able to build on top of um, these large language models. And so to me, I think those are some of the really exciting use cases like um, traditional ML done faster and then um, combined in perhaps new and interesting ways like with um, your product knowledge about what's most useful for your customers. I think those are really interesting use cases 
in addition to some of the truly new stuff around, you know, chat and, and things like that. But when we, you know, like when we go back to thinking about like our generative AI strategy, like we don't really want to have a generative AI strategy, right? Like it's a, it's sort of, it's a tool. And what we want to do is like figure out the way to solve problems for our customers. And, um, hopefully, you know, generative AI and make, and these language models makes that stuff faster and easier, but like, we're not just trying to go out and have a, a gen AI strategy. Yeah. Yeah. makes perfect sense. So, um, what you have in the product today is a summarization of a transcript and extracting topics. A topic could be, I don't know, growth or retention, uh, um, at the transcript level. Um, you know, not that I'm asking you to share any proprietary information, but just kind of broadly speaking, um, do you view you could use similar technologies to what you mentioned? And Michelangelo, we'll talk about the implementation details in a moment, but um, do you think you could move from at the transcript level to generating summaries or topics at the company level? And furthermore, could you move from just qualitative transcripts to also modeling, right? Which is probably the highest level of accuracy requirement. What are your thoughts around, you know, infusing AI into, you know, a higher level purview of generating insights? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's that's actually how we have approached the product development process first. So things that uh, things that we can build on top of a single transcript are absolutely uh, the easiest place to start. Um, and so the issue with um, these large language models is that you have a, a finite amount of context that you're able to fit into the model. And generally, except for kind of the most recent generation of models, our transcripts are too long to fit into a single uh, LLM call. Uh, but still, it's easiest to build features with a single transcript. Uh, and so that's where we started with our summaries um, and our topic extraction. And that's great. Our customers have found huge value just in terms of those couple of things because, yeah, it's a huge investment to read a 20-page a transcript. And you really want to have an idea with a summary or a set of topics to figure out, hey, do I actually want to invest this time? Um, but that's kind of like maybe the zeroth order, I think, like level of value you can bring with these transcripts. And then yeah, on top of that, you want to say, hey, what can I learn from the complete collection of transcripts about a company? So um, to Lionel's point earlier where he said, hey, maybe there are five sets of, or maybe there's a set of five questions, basic questions that all investors ask about a company. How can you start to address those questions using the whole collection of corpus, uh, the whole corpus of uh, transcripts for a, a company? Or can you start to pull out um, common themes or common questions that are being asked across multiple transcripts and surface those in an interesting way. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of value there. Anytime you have more and more information that gets harder and harder for a human to sift through, I think that's where these tools really have the opportunity to shine. Um, and then the last part of your question was about sort of how do you get to that kind of financial model level or the catalyst data model level? Um, I think that um, we've thought about that a little bit, uh, but I think that's a little kind of also kind of an emerging area of these LLM applications. So um, basically, it's sort of a different data source, right? So all the things you've been talking about up until now are these unstructured um, sources of text data. Um, and for our canalyst models, we do sort of have that kind of data as well in terms of um, column descriptions and metadata about a financial model. But the, the financial model data is really much more structured. Uh, there's a there's a clean API that you can pull time series data um, for kind of these proprietary metrics um, that Canalyst provides. And so um, when you really think about building experiences on top of that, um, these are kind of these emerging um, like tool use or like agent-based um, language model workflows where um, a, a, an LLM can learn uh, for certain sets of inputs that should call out to an API to get answers back and then use those answers as part of its response. And this is something that I think is just emerging in the last three or four months. You've seen tools like this popping up into 
open source frameworks and patterns for people. Um, and so it's really a different way of building, but I think it's potentially really powerful. If you think about a question answering experience, there are a lot of questions that someone might ask where the answer is in an authoritative um, set of data that isn't a canvas model. And what you really want to do is surface that data or show a graph of that data or something like that and not try to uh, you know, pull out a number from an expert transcript or something like that. So uh, today using LLMs, tomorrow maybe a combination on, and of, of chaining together using agents, um, uh, either looking at the unstructured data or a set of commands based on other authoritative or more structured data sources. We touched upon uh, the importance of accuracy um, in the financial investment domain, but accuracy is also a common issue using any kind of AI or probabilistic technology. Can you talk a little bit, elaborate a little bit more on how do you manage accuracy? And maybe one specific question is, how do you assess whether the accuracy is good enough for a specific use case? Yeah, so the, the question of accuracy with all these applications is uh, is paramount, right? Super, super important. Um, and again, I think a useful way to think about it is um, in terms of maybe traditional ML applications and then some of the new generative type applica um, applications. So for the more traditional ML applications, a lot of the same um, evaluation techniques you might have used in the past are still very applicable, right? Like if you're doing... Um, entity extraction or sentiment classification, or if you have a set of finite, you know, labels that you want to apply to your tech, to your, to your, uh, your text, all the same evaluation methods you would have used, um, in, in previous iterations of ML are still applicable. So, uh, generating labels in some way, whether that's from existing data, um, uh, being clever with existing data or, um, you know, crowdsourcing labels in a certain way, and then applying, um, the models and checking with, checking your kind of golden set of ground truth labels. Um, there is a new interesting possibility that folks are using, which is using a language model to actually uh, check the results of another language model. So can you use a language model to pull out, um, you know, like use a, use a powerful model like GPT-4 and run some documents through um, to generate a sort of a golden set of labels that you then evaluate a second technique against that. That's sort of a new possibility. But um, those, we know how to evaluate, I guess, kind of those sorts of models. Um, where it gets a little bit uh, dicier are things like uh, where you're actually generating new pieces of text. So, for example, um, if you're generating a summary or you're um, answering a question or you're paraphrasing something, um, those those kinds of applications are a little bit harder to evaluate. Uh, and I think traditionally you might do something like have a human write a summary for something and then just kind of count the overlap uh, between what a human does and what the model does. But that's really hard um, and that doesn't scale super well. Um, and so the kinds of things that we've been doing internally are a mix of um, kind of human evaluation, um, like humans reading and, and rating a lot of these things internally. Uh, we've been trying to come up with clever sets of rules and checks that we can apply in code um, to various things. Um, you know, like for example, if you think about summaries, you want to make sure that you're not making up numbers, um, that any kind of number that it pulls out into a summary um, is a number that appeared in the transcript somewhere. And those are some kinds of things that you can code up checks against. Um, so we have been applying techniques like that. Um, I think maybe the last thing I'll say about, about the evaluation is um, you can evaluate as much as you want, um, but really you also need to give your customers the ability to follow up and evaluate as well. So in the summary case, it's a little bit simpler, right? Like if there's something in a summary, you know that it's come from the, the transcript, transcript below it. But if you think about other use cases like 
uh, question answering or chat type experiences, like being able to cite sources and and navigate to those uh, actual raw snippets of text to let someone follow up on the answer and verify it, I think is super, super important. Yeah, awesome. And what one really interesting thing that you said is almost applying different techniques to avoid things that are objectively wrong, like saying a number that doesn't even exist in a transcript, and then maybe more subjective, where if you and I summarize the same transcript, we'll also have quite a lot of difference and, you know, dealing with that in a different way, if you will, right? Um, which is super interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's actually one of the interesting things about some of these systems. Like we hear a lot from customers, uh, oh, you know, this, this ML method might not be great for reason X. Uh, and then we hear from another customer for reason Y. And it turns out X and Y are sort of just um, versions of someone's human preference. It's not something that you can objectively measure. And some people prefer longer summaries. Some people prefer shorter summaries. Some people prefer bullet summaries. And that's not really an ML issue. It's more an issue of like what their human preferences are. And speaking about preferences, do you rely on the end user to provide feedback? I like the summary. I didn't like this uh, from a UX perspective. And how do you, what do you do with that feedback? Uh, yeah, that's super important. So all of these features that we've rolled out, summaries, topics, um, some future things that we have uh, coming out, we think a lot about um, providing in-product feedback mechanisms for our users, right? Because So we do lots of user research and we show these to lots of people to get qualitative feedback from things as simple as like thumbs up and thumbs down icons on summaries um, to ability to report problems, um, et cetera. It's been super useful to us. So if I just take the summaries example, you know, you can do something as simple as like look at the ratio of thumbs up to thumbs down to try to understand like, is this resonating with people? And, you know, I think we're both blown away both by the, uh, the absolute amount of positive feedback, but also the uh, positive to negative ratio where it was really, really good. Um, but then anytime someone reports a problem with a summary, we will track that down and try to look at it and understand like, is this actually a problem? Um, is there, is, has the summary said something that's incomplete or incomplete or untrue? Uh, and I believe it's true that to this day, we haven't actually gotten a report of something that the summary has said was not true, but we like to track every single one of those down. So the, the feedback is, um, right now we're acting on it in a manual way, right? Uh, looking at it, trying to tweak algorithms, et cetera. Uh, in the future, I imagine if we have more of it, we could op uh, operate it with a you know more automatic way of tuning models and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And you talked earlier about AI to review AI. Um, there's a almost a hybrid where there's AI to review AI, but using human feedback or end user feedback in that, which is just another signal. Well, let's let's dive a little bit more into the technology stack. Um, can you talk a little bit about which models you are using today, and and if there are any you know plans for the future? Elaborate on that a little bit as well. Yeah. Uh, so we started um, building uh, a bunch of these features on top of um, OpenAI uh, because it's uh, the guys were really easy to use. It was super cost effective, and as we started to build, we found uh, that things worked really well. Um, I guess historically, it's funny. Historically, we started building uh, with GPT-3. And then shortly thereafter, the 3.5 chat GPT API came out. So we were building a lot on top of that. And today, it's a mix of um, 3.5 and 4. Um, you know, there are some issues building on top of 4. It does appear to be more accurate, but it's both more expensive um, and a lot slower. And so there, there's some things where we found the advantages of using 4 are just better. Mm -hmm. Um, than using 3.5. But at the moment, we're building a bunch of stuff on top of OpenAI uh, because it works well, not because I think we're convinced that long-term that's the only thing we should ever build on top of. I think 
you know, if you talked to us again in a year or a year and a half uh, from now, I think it would be surprising if we hadn't evaluated some other closed source vendors as well, just because, you know, any technologist will tell you it's not great to be locked into one, one closed source vendor. Uh, and so I think there are, um, you know, one or two of the other closed source vendors that we would probably look at. Um, and then we're definitely uh, watching really closely what's happening with all of these open source models, because I think there's a lot of um, a lot of things that are potentially attractive about being able to deploy uh, open source LLMs for various pieces of, of these applications. Um, and then, you know, there are we are actually using um, some open source uh, some open source models for things like embeddings and things like that um, that are part of the tech stack as well. Awesome. And you talked about using open AI and potentially using other closed source and even open source vendors. Um, when you use these models, what do you have? What's the are you doing anything today to customize or fine tune the models? And um, is there anything planned to do that, right? Um, to kind of make it more domain specific to finance and financial research? I think it's a very open question still um, when someone should fine tune one of these large language models. You know, the, um, so Bloomberg uh, got a lot of press, I don't know, three or four months ago for training like a Bloomberg GPT model on top of a bunch of their proprietary data. And I think. They made claims that um, if you, you know, actually training your own model from scratch on some of their finance-specific data um, had improvements on downstream tasks like headline generation or um, sentiment uh, analysis in particular domains. And so um, I don't doubt those results, but the question is, like, are the improvements actually worth, um, worth all the work that went into that? And for some applications, I think the answer is probably pretty clearly no, that you don't need you know, an extra decimal point accuracy in some of these things. Um, and I think, yeah, it's an open question whether I think generally fine tuning um, will make the model produce text that is more like your input text, but that's often not what you want to do. Often what you want to do is um, provide the context of your own data. And that's where this sort of retrieval augmented generation comes in, where you're actually, you're not fine tuning, you're you're running a search process behind the scenes to find the most relevant data and then providing that to the language model. The language model is more more summarizing or extracting or something like that. So so to answer your question directly, like we're not we're not fine-tuning uh, any models right now. It's something we would probably play with in the future. Uh, but it's also I think it's also not clear what the best practice is for when you actually need to do this. I was at a uh, I, th I think it's gonna end up being a bit domain specific. Like I I went to a Couple forums hosted by um, some investors about uh, just discussing it, adoption of LMs internally and building products with them and so forth like that. And there were some people from a variety of legal uh, software management uh, startups that talked about how they saw some gains from kind of like finding you know honing in on some legal contract language. But they were mm -hmm. actually honestly quite modest. I, I tend to think that what's happened is that the um, the general purpose LMs have just gotten good enough that they're fairly adept at handling most language. And as Michelangelo said, it's like, do you actually want to stay in like the world of hyper-specific terminology? It's like, it's not actually clear that that's what's happening, at least in, in our data sets, that that's the, the right yeah. way to approach things. And Lionel, as you mentioned, and, and, and the legal use case, uh, you know, generic LLMs are getting good enough, but they're also, you know, the answer today may be different from the answer a year from now. And it's likely that if you spend a lot of investment on something which it's not it's not trivial to port, you need to take that into account as well. I, I would say an interesting thing for us just from a prog strategy perspective has been that it's very nice to be able to kind of be in a position where um, 
we kind of get a, a better mousetrap to play with like every month uh, to a certain extent. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know much, but I'm very confident that in a year from now, LMs will be a little bit marginally more powerful or perhaps much more powerful than they are today. And from, from our perspective, you know, if we're making products that are designed to kind of give investors information or help them get information faster and faster, our position is quite nice because we are the originator of unique and proprietary and high-quality data. And so we're kind of, you know, if we're squeezing that data to get as much juice from it as possible, what's kind of, you know, Sam Altman's handing us a better juice squeezer every six months, and that's very nice. And that's, you know, ultimately we benefit <laughs> and so do our customers. And so it's it's good to be in this position where you can kind of focus on creating new experiences with new tools, but you're back, it's backed up by the fact that you're, the originator of the data. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's that that's the real power behind everything we're building, which is that that unique proprietary data set that we have, and and yeah, the AI is the is the is the juice squeezer that it's great, but really, what what our customers want is the juice, and we have that raw data. And I think implicit in kind of what you're implying is you've also built up your tech stack in a way where it's fairly easy to upgrade to the next shiny object or the next better juice squeezer. Um, and they could do that, you know, fairly, fairly quickly. Um, and you can be nimble from that perspective. OpenAI um, can sometimes get expensive uh, based on how you use it and the amount of calls. Um, is that, you know, is cost an issue when you're rolling out this AI? Um, do you have to adjust your pricing model? How do you deal with the potential, you know, computational and ongoing variable costs of in, uh, having AI into, into your product? Yeah, I would say it's a thing that we monitor and pay attention to and make sure that we're not going to um, kind of, you know, blow the the total budget on, on this stuff. But it hasn't been an issue so far. And honestly, I feel that the return on investment in terms of the benefits it gets to our customers, um, you know, I haven't formally analyzed it, but I would feel very confident that it's extremely attractive and a good thing for us to do. And, you know, ultimately, we, we benefit, like, it, it's kind of... Uh, I don't see a world where we don't buy the better juice squeezer. I think it's it's almost always going to be a good idea. I've had conversations with our CFO where he said things like, "I would pay ten times that per transcript for the for the value of what this you know what this particular feature would provide to our customers." And so I think um, it it's really about um, getting our stakeholders to see the value in the stuff that we're building, and then usually the cost of what of the the under the cover model stuff is you know, pales in the comparison to what they would spend for the value of some of the stuff. That's one of the luxuries and advantages of having a very high value service uh, that you offer uh, to customers. Um, uh, last question, you, we touched upon, you know, measuring the kind of up thumbs up versus thumbs down for the summaries, but just more broadly, how do you measure the success of all the investments that you're making in AI? I mean, I think it's ultimately about our our products, our our customers telling us that these things are helpful. Um, I think that just to to offer like a macro perspective, I was there when Tegas was creating you know two hundred new transcripts every month or one hundred new transcripts every month. And if if you were an investment analyst and you were interested in learning about uh, a, tr- a company that we covered, you could just read every single interview that we published. Uh, and that was a viable thing you could do. And now we're putting out thousands and thousands of new interviews every month. And the volume of stuff that's been published over time has increased dramatically. And so our problem in a lot of ways has shifted from let's produce more content to how do we help people find 
and get the most value and actually extract and get the insights from the stuff that we already have. And you know, we're going to focus on creating more content as well, but that is a is a new problem for us. And it's not a problem that's exclusively solved by AI. It's like search helps us with that. Users can walk, you know, just things like saying, hey, I'm interested in this company or I'm interested in this safe search or something like that. That can help with that. But the problem of like, you know, how do we know that someone has gotten, like, like what, ultimately what we're trying to do is we try to say, hey, can we deliver something that helps someone get an insight from the, the data that we have? And, and that's ultimately how we measure success in, in most ways when it comes to the expert interviews product. And so it's not unique in that respect. Let's switch gears a little bit more on the organizational structure to support all of this innovation. Um, Lionel, how is your product and engineering organization structured in terms of who works on AI? Are they a separate team or you know part of existing teams? Love to get some insight into that. Yeah, so this is actually an area where things have a little bit changed from how I thought that they would go eventually. Uh, so at first, rather. So when we first started getting very, very interested in uh, large language models in particular, the thing that struck me was how applicable the technology is across a huge amount of stuff that we do. So at Tegas, we have a, there's a product group that's working on creating new expert interview content. So they're very focused on like working with our operations teams who actually arrange the calls and find the experts and transcribe the calls and run through compliance processes and so forth. Tons and tons of applications there. Uh, in terms of like finding better experts, generating summaries of someone's work history so you can say, hey, do you want to talk to this person? All sorts of stuff you could do there would be really good. We also have a group that works on, you know, from a, a, we haven't talked very much about our models product right now, but there's a lot of interesting automation that happens in terms of ensuring high quality input data into the models that can also be, that is currently, uh, done through non-LLM uh, like machine learning techniques that could possibly be augmented with LLMs. And so when I first thought about things, I was sort of like, okay, well, we're going to have, we'll have Michelangelo, you know, as our, our fearless AI, AI leader, and he'll have uh, a bunch of different people, and they will maybe be embedded across the organization. And so we'll have like a, you know, we'll have some centralized management, but we'll have like a kind of like consultant model where we're, Michelangelo has a lot of people who are just helping um Add the way I would think about it is we would want to add using LLMs to the tool belt of every development team that wants to use it. Now I still think that that's what we want to do, but what we found in practice is that there's just been so much demand for these forward customer-facing features that take advantage of his team's capabilities that we actually in in you know as of today you know end of August you know 2023 the team is largely still centralized and we're kind of concentrating our resources on some features that we just think are very, very high value and it's worth kind of like focusing on. And some of these, you know, especially process, you know, internal efficiency improvements, uh, we're we're content to kind of like sit on them a little bit until we have a, a bigger team to work on this stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I really think we're in this like awkward in-between phase a little bit now. I mean, I think I think there are like a couple of things which are true and are different from before, I guess, which is that, like I said earlier, like these new LLM APIs are able to be used so much more easily by people without really specific um, data science and machine learning capabilities. And I think that's different. And so I think we do want um, any engineer on any feature team in our com- in our company to feel comfortable experimenting and perhaps building with these tools. We just need to get to the point where we can sort of train them and enable them and, and let that happen. Because I think 
there are so many ideas and, you know, we had a hackathon back in March and the number of cool projects that came out of that hackathon, just because an engineer had an idea and built something with, with these APIs was really actually pretty inspiring. And so if we try to funnel all of that through an AI team or one team, it's, it's really going to do us a disservice because we're just, we're always going to be bottlenecked. So, so at some point in the future, I think this kind of like hub and spoke model where we enable a bunch of the teams and maybe an ML person embeds on that team, but maybe not. Maybe they just advise or they train, but it's the engineer that had the idea and builds a feature. I think that's that's where we want to go, where the, the I've, I've used this analogy before, where like we want the ML person to be kind of like the spice, uh, the spice in the dish, right? Like it's not the whole dish and you don't need ML people everywhere, but but there is still value in that expertise in, the, in terms of like, how do you set up an ML problem? How do you evaluate? Maybe we have common tools and expertise for working with some of these things. But at the end of the day, like we just, we, we can't be the bottleneck. We need the engineers to be able to build this stuff. Michelangelo, I'd be very impressed if you somehow update your title with the word spice in it in whichever way <laughs> that you, 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 you desire. But I can be the chief, chief AI, chief AI chef. The spice master. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, VP of AI spice. Yeah. And, and, you know, the trajectory you mentioned is a little bit similar to, I don't know, when mobile was first introduced, it was almost always a dedicated mobile team. And over time, you know, it got more and more distributed because that just became table stakes. And it seems like based on where you are on the journey, but also given most of the focus is also fairly narrow on the transcript front end that there's a centralized team, but the desire is definitely to kind of decentralize and have that in each of the teams that are, you know, innovating on AI, which is also equal to innovating full stop, yeah. right? Um, so that makes a lot of sense. This has been a fantastic discussion on on really kind of peeling the onion back on what Tegas does and how they do it. Uh, before I close, though, uh, gentlemen, if you would let me ask a few uh, quick fire questions. Um, I'm going to, um, maybe Lionel, if you could answer the first question, outside of financial research, what Gen AI use cases are you most excited by? Yeah, I was thinking about this um, on my way in today. I have to say education. So there's a there's a school, an elementary school near where I live, that on the side of it, there's a quote from Abigail Adams, where she said that the um, schoolhouse classroom was the most important invention in human history. And I think that that's true. You know, once they started really doing that back in the 1700s, it really transformed access to education and allowed everyone to kind of, you know, get a real education in the way that wasn't possible when it was just one-on-one -on -one tutors all the time. Uh, maybe my history is bad here, but you get the idea. Uh, but, you know, I, I read a book a long time ago by Neil Stevenson called The Diamond Age. And in it, there's a, uh, a poor uh, girl somehow gets into possession of an intelligent book that has within it, that is designed to teach a single person through kind of back and forth question answer, kind of like what we would recognize as one-on-one -on -one instruction tutoring. Um, but it can do this as a, as a machine. And so I think that long-term, you know, I don't think this is possible with current LLM technology, not, not autonomously. But I think that long-term, the, you know, education's a field where one of the things that's, that's challenging with it is that it's, you know, it's, one teacher can't teach 500 students in a high school. That's just not reasonable. And I don't think that uh, that the inability to have like real productivity gains like has been really challenging in that in that field. And I think that you know, it's, you, I think you kind of get where this could. Um, I think this could go is that you could have really, really like, intelligent, useful tools 
based on like with the current LLM technology as a prototype to it that helps do one-on-one instruction for every student at a reasonable cost. That would be really transformative and a really powerful uh, thing to see. Yeah, it certainly feels like your personalized AI tutor in your pocket is is getting closer to reality. Uh, that's an amazing use case. Uh, Michelangelo, um, will open source or closed source generative AI models win out in the long term? Um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge this question and say I actually don't think one or the other will win. I think that they're both. We're gonna see both of them. Um, and I was I was thinking a little bit about um, similarly how you you know you have Snowflake and Databricks in kind of the data management sphere, right? Snowflake is very closed source and black box in a certain way, and Databricks is is very um, open source and built on top of open source technology that you can deploy in other ways, like. I think there are rooms for multiple winners. Like there are, there are always going to be companies that don't want to deal with uh, deploying open source models either themselves or if someone is is going to help them. Like there, there's just something more attractive about using um, the the best thing that's out there that they don't have to worry about uh, deploying. So I think there's an opportunity for that. But then I think um, what is going to be undeniable is that the open source models are going to catch up in terms of quality. Um, so I don't think there's a world where OpenAI and their closed source models are always far and away better than what you can get uh, with open source. I think just the speed at which open source has evolved this year. I mean, I think we already have now with Llama 2 a commercially usable open source chat GPT quality model. I've already seen people working on, uh, you know, mixture of experting those Llama 2 models to get a GPT-4 quality model. Like I think the open source stuff will definitely catch up. Um, so I, I just think in the long run, there are going to be both options on the table for people. Yeah, and it's not just about accuracy. It's also about the ease of getting up and running. And some engineers or people might be more comfortable with an API-based closed source than others with the open source. So I think uh, that false dichotomy in this question is a good one that you're you're highlighting. Well, gentlemen, thank you for this insightful conversation. It was really fun understanding just... Uh, you know, starting with the amount of unstructured data that Tigas has and what Tigas does uh, for people like me, but also uh, the different techniques that you're deploying and using to really surface insights that needle in the haystack in the tons of information that the Tigas platform has. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Orphish Crib, and see you again.